this is 911 emergency. How can I help you today? Oh my God, finally you picked up. I thought the police got defunded for real. No, ma'am, we were defunded and then refunded. Okay, well, thanks for picking up. I know we're in the middle of a crime wave in Atlanta, but there's also a bioterror weapon on the loose. It's called Morgulons and it's growing on my face. Can somebody help me? Okay, ma'am. Well, this sounds like a situation where we need to transfer you to a mental health professional. Hold on for just a moment. No, I'm not crazy. I don't need a mental health professional. God damn it. Hello, ma'am. What is the problem? The problem is, is that no matter who I reach out to for help, no one helps me. No matter what evidence I have, no one believes me. And on top of everything, I've got more Morgulons. Crystal Clear here. You're listening to more Morgulons. This is not an emergency, but it is an ongoing shit show and a never-ending nightmare of lesions. Uh, so just thought I would share this interesting uh, development over here in Atlanta, Georgia. As listeners of this show may know, um, if you've listened from the beginning, you know that I caught Morgulons at the same time as two people that I know and was close to um, at the time that we got Morgulons. First, my ex-boyfriend got it, then I got it, then my best friend got it. Um, The guys, the two guys in this scenario, not me, seem to have gotten over their Morgulons pretty quickly within the first, I don't know, Four months? Five? Mine continues, although it has been better lately. Shout out to fellow Morgie and podcaster Morgulon's discussion group. Jeremy, I've been doing this trial without the topical antibiotic. I mean, it's too soon to really say, but I think you might have actually been right. I think I was killing so much of the normal flora that it was allowing the Morgulons to flourish, whatever the fuck they may be. Um, but yeah, I'll keep you guys posted on how that's going. Uh, but still have Morgulons. Um, and you know, I'm starting to really think that my ex, who pretty much vehemently denies the existence of Morgulons, even though I've seen and he has seen black specks come out of his feet and his hands when this all first started and he had this huge itchy breakout that looked like scabies at first. Um, but yeah, he's been in denial ever since then and that's fine because that's the way some people handle Morgulons and God bless you if you can fucking deny this and ignore it. It, it probably does go away. I don't know. But um, but, but perhaps not. <laughs> because um, yeah, like recently, you know, he just reached out to me. He was like, you know, I've been having these genital lesions. It's happened like three times now. And I've been to the doctor. They say it's not herpes. They say it's not an STI or STD, whatever you prefer. And I just can't figure out what the hell this is. And I'm like, uh, duh, it's Morgulons. Haven't you read the latest Morgulons research about genital lesions and Morgulons? And he's like, Crystal, it's not Morgulons. Really? Mm. And I'm like, hey. If it's not herpes, it's not syphilis, it's not gonorrhea, it's not genital warts, or any other kind of known sexually transmitted disease. Well then, buddy, it could be... Morgulons! If I haven't said this before on the show... I just want to say, I think Morgulons is a sexually transmitted disease. 
kind of like scabies. You know how you can get scabies without having sex with somebody, but most of the time you get scabies from having sex with somebody who has scabies? And you know how everybody thinks that Mortalon's a scabies in the beginning? There's something to that, y'all. I'm just going on a hunch in the absence of facts, evidence, or credible data. Just going on the otherwise known as fictitious facts. No, it's just a feeling. I'm telling you, there's something there. There's something about morgue scabies. It's hard to explain. Anyway, I'm going to go back to what I was talking about last episode and finish up sharing with you guys something I wrote when I was a senior in nursing school. I described my senior practicum in the emergency department. And this was in the pre-Trumpian era. We were all pretty uh, naive back in those days. Um, But even before I started my nursing career in the mental health field, and before I became a fake mental patient, AKA Morgie, I was already catching on, as you remember from the last episode, if you were listening, I kind of talk a lot about how, you know, I'm aware of the fact that some people are not really getting taken seriously, and that's unprprofessional and unscientific. If this is evidence-based healthcare, then you need to gather evidence before you write somebody off as a nut job, okay? And by the way, some nut jobs might actually have real physical Uh, complaints as well. It is possible to have both. So thanks for listening. If you are going to continue to listen, or if you like me, just listen to the funny part and then turn it off. Um, But if not, if you're one of those long haulers of more Morgulons, I appreciate you and stay tuned. It's going to be an excellent episode, I assure you. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, if I survive, I'm coming to you live In a pre-recorded show that I did to show These objects of wonder, horror, beauty, fascination, obsession, and grief Morgulons! I made more Morgulons, you're welcome It's the greatest, the weirdest the most bizarre podcast in all of podcast land. So give me a hand. Give yourself a hand. Here we stand, alone together, forever. I'm going to wrap up these reflections. Going to look into the crystal clear ball that looks into the past. Not often used. The one for the future is much more useful. But I hope you enjoy this. And so picking up from last episode, we're on week four. 
February 21st, 2015, and February 22nd, 2015. It was challenging to return to the clinical setting this week and work with my regular preceptor, whose watch and learn teaching style is now clearly contrasted with the do and learn approach I became accustomed to last week with the other preceptor. I admit that it felt like the momentum I had been gaining last week in technical skill proficiency was being progressively subjected to the inertia of Valerie's resistance to delegate these particular responsibilities of patient care to me. When opportunities were provided, I was prohibited from completing a task at the first sign that my trial might become trial and error. For example, I would be asked to start an IV on a patient and would thus put on the tourniquet, choose my site, clean it, insert the needle in the vein, get a flashback, and advance the catheter. But if I failed to place sufficient pressure on the proximal portion of the catheter as I attempted to attach the J-loop and flush the IV, thereby dribbling blood on patient and bed sheets, I would be overtaken in my attempt mid-procedure and demoted to a lesser task. While in many ways I can see my preceptor's response to this scenario as logical and efficient, I am also convinced that the methods of a good nurse do not always correspond to the methods of a good teacher. In my frustration with the situation, which one might call a theme now, I found myself wondering at the end of the week whether the uncharacteristic lack of self-confidence I have experienced this semester was not simply an emergency department neophyte's natural and safest state of mind, but rather was in part a product of a preceptor who was unwilling or unable to relinquish control or place any trust in her student. However, upon further reflection, I believe this frustration represents neither a deficiency of teaching ability on her part, nor a deficit of aptitude on mine. In fact, it represents a learning opportunity about leadership that may have as much educational value as any other professional experience this clinical opportunity can provide, J-loops included. In the course of trying to achieve my personal objectives during this clinical experience and often feeling thwarted in my efforts, I've occasionally been tempted to revert to a type of thinking that I call the follower's fallacy. The follower's fallacy is a term I use to describe a phenomenon that we are all familiar with because we've often heard others or even ourselves been guilty of saying things like, well, it's no wonder this place has problem X since the person in charge the boss, the professor, always does action Y. See, if I ran this place, I would do actions A, B, C, and these sorts of statements reveal several things about those who express them. First, it reveals these speakers to be followers, specifically followers who have forgotten or misunderstood their role in relation to the leader or leadership of the organization that they are a part of. Based upon mistaken cognitions and or false beliefs that leaders have more agency, responsibility, importance, and perhaps even more value than followers, the follower often feels a sense of powerlessness and frustration in their role. These feelings will persist, often magnifying and multiplying, even spreading over time unless and until the false beliefs, cognitions are replaced with an accurate understanding of their own agency, responsibility, importance, and value. Leaders and followers exist only in symbiosis, an interdependence that necessitates complete equality between these roles, parity in importance and value. 
The follower also has as much agency power as the leader. Though the consequences of followers' decisions and actions may be of a different nature and scope, they wield a great deal of power in determining the outcome of both individual and institutional objectives. In this way, the followers' responsibilities are great since any leader's idea, good or bad, is worthless until it is implemented by followers. further illustrate this concept, I will explain how I came to realize that my frustration did not stem from anything Valerie was or was not doing that was preventing me from improving my skills or cultivating my confidence. This frustration stemmed from the fact that I became distracted from the fundamental and guiding purpose of this leadership practicum, to acquire professional experience and growth in order to become better prepared to enter the professional workplace as a good leader and a good follower. It is not my role as a student follower to judge or criticize how or what lessons my teacher leader imparts. It is my responsibility to analyze and draw useful knowledge from whatever instruction or experience that may be transmitted by my teacher intentionally or otherwise. For instance, I have learned a great deal about not taking things personally or making assumptions about the motivations that drive others' behavior. For example, I do not believe that my preceptor is wary of delegating responsibility to me because she lacks trust or confidence in my abilities. Honestly, I think she's still making up her mind about me. She and I approach relationships differently. I begin relationships with complete trust in others, and unless an event occurs to erode that trust, my trust in others remains relatively complete. But Valerie has a much more cautious approach to relationship and gaining her trust occurs incrementally with the steady accumulation of experiences or evidence that convey trustworthiness to her. So although I will continue to seek opportunities and experiences in all professional areas, I think that in my final week of practicum, I would like to focus on being a better follower, being more open and receptive to my preceptor's needs and objectives instead of my personal objectives and insecurities. The best thing I can do in my role right now is to continue to convey my positive attitude, dependability, motivation, and willingness to help anyone with anything. Clearly, one of the biggest challenges in any professional setting is forming functional, healthy relationships with peers and superiors, not all of whom will show the least bit of interest in forming a positive relationship with me. In the fast-paced, high-stakes healthcare environment of the emergency department, where communication and teamwork are absolutely essential for providing optimal patient-centered care, these interpersonal and interdisciplinary relationships are even more crucial. Uh, preach it, sister. You don't even know what you're talking about, and you're knowing what you're talking about. Telling the future, crystal clear here, looking through the ball. Are y'all ready for clinical reflections week? Five. I'm going live with week five, the final week. Well, I can hardly believe it's already over, but this week marks the end of my leadership practicum. At the risk of sounding silly or disingenuous, I must confess that I'm sad this experience has come to an end. It seems like I'm finishing just as I was beginning. 
These last shifts have felt like a significant turning point in my professional, personal, academic journey in so many ways. I can now walk into most patients' rooms and do what a real nurse would do, conduct a brief but focused and thorough assessment, anticipate physicians' orders and patients' needs based on my assessment and knowledge, and then initiate basic nursing interventions with specific appropriate outcomes in mind. It's hard to believe that only a few weeks ago, I was that silly student nurse breaking out in a sweat at the bedside, fumbling around for a full 60 seconds as I tried to get a probe cover on the thermometer when I should have been starting an ECG on a cardiac patient. I don't know whether to cringe or giggle at the sad sack of scrubs I must have looked like on a clinical day one when I put a nasal cannula on my patient, only to be politely informed by her spouse that, ma'am, I think it's supposed to untie in the front. I truly have learned so much and have so much more to learn. The successful completion of this experience and the sense of pride and accomplishment I feel are unquestionable, as is my ever-deepening passion for and commitment to this profession. Nonetheless, saying goodbye my last day in the ED was bittersweet. I've come to really enjoy working with the people in this department and regret having to leave just when I'm starting to be treated more like and feel more like a part of the team. Not only has Valerie been a great preceptor, so many of the nurses and techs have gone out of their way to help include and teach me during this experience. Just in these last two shifts, one nurse taught me how to access a port and do a sterile dressing change. Another led me through a Foley and an NG tube insertion. And on my last shift, like my first, Valerie made sure I was present and able to participate in a code blue. If anyone ever actually lives through my attempts to give CPR, I'll know I'm doing it right. I know I've achieved the chief purpose of the senior practicum, which is to experience what it is like to work as a nurse in an acute care setting, because I've also experienced unfamiliar and somewhat upsetting new feelings of exasperation when the doctor orders a fourth CT scan for the patient I've seen three times in the past two weeks for, quote, headache, quote, abdominal pain, and, quote, sore throat. Aggravation with the complacency and cynicism that pervade the healthcare professions, fear, because I now understand why they are so cynical, and depression, when I leave the room in which our efforts have failed to resuscitate a morbidly obese 42-year-old mother of two so that I can go update the vital signs of another patient, a pregnant woman in her mid-20s who is 230 pounds overweight and whose very chubby five-year-old is eating some kind of red candy that appears to be a combination of hardened sugar and powdered sugar in the mold of an ice cream cone. This patient, like the dead woman down the hall, has come in with complaints of chest pain. For the first time in my life, I truly understand in a personal, visceral way what it is really meant when I read the reports and see the numbers that indicate that our healthcare system is unsustainable and broken. And for the first time, I also truly and deeply understand what is at stake because I've seen the faces of my patients and their families, none too different from me or my family, as they struggle to receive health care and hope in the face of trauma, disease, and the crippling fear of death and loss. 
Nursing leadership is not something I had ever considered pursuing before this class or clinical experience, but I now feel that a leadership position of some kind may very well be a part of my future career path in nursing. I already have a dozen ideas that address problems I've witnessed within the system. Techniques to streamline certain redundancies, protocols that could prevent significant and unnecessary financial losses, simple strategies to improve staff morale. If I ever actually learn how to draw blood without getting a half pint of it on the floor first, they might just put me in charge of the place. Until then though, I will be the best student nurse, apprentice, and follower that I know how to be. Before very long, I'll be a quote, real nurse and eventually an old pro. And when I am, I'll look back at this transitional period of my early career and be so grateful to all the people, both professionals and patients who helped me and inspired me and reaffirmed my love for and commitment to this incredibly meaningful, challenging and rewarding line of work and way of life. I love nursing. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned. Do you want me to do your call? Oh, yeah. It's a problem.